Okay, we're at the last of our series in Elijah and Elisha today. It's supposed to be an R there. And um, we're going to conclude with the last passage, which is in 2 Kings chapter 13. And we'll read from verse 14. When Elisha became sick of the illness which, of which he was to die, Joash, or Jehoash, depending which version you read, the king of Israel came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. And he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hands on it. And then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the window towards the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. You remember from last week, the Arameans are a people based in Syria around Damascus. Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck it five or six times. And you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. <clears throat> Elisha died and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. And as they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. This is the last episode in the account of Elisha. And of course, the whole story of Elisha is mixed up with the stories of the kings of Israel. So a very, very brief account of a little bit of history of Elisha would be helpful here. This is the list of kings that we've been looking at as we've gone through. We started with Ahab, you remember him? Reprobate type of character, married to Jezebel. And he reigned for 22 years in Israel. And then there was Ahaziah, who reigned for two years before he fell out of an upstairs window. And then there was Joram, son of Ahab, who reigned for 12 years. And they were all a bad lot, really. So then God had prophesied through Elijah that Jehu would come along and he would wipe out the house of Ahab, which is exactly what he did. And then Jehu, uh, the usurper, one of the king's generals, reigned for 28 years. And then Jehoahaz reigned for 17 years, his son. And then Jehoash, his son, reigned for a further 16 years, or Joash as it is in this passage. So during the reign of, of Ahab at the top, Elisha was anointed as a prophet, and you'll see that in 1 Kings 19, 15 to 20. He picked up the mantle from Elijah during the reign of Jerem, and he prophesied through to the reign of Jehoash. So if he was about 20 when he was anointed, he was around about 77 when he died. Long, fruitful life and ministry throughout that time. He carried out his ministry throughout those years and throughout the reigns of those kings. And during this time of ministry, there'd been a constant series of wars. Aram had been invading Israel, Israel had been repelling them, and then they were battling over that whole area of the territory. 
And of course, coupled with this, the series of kings, particularly the top three, have been very idolatrous. Starting with Ahab's marriage to Jezebel, and although Jehu had wiped out the house of Ahab, in accordance with the prophecy given to Elijah, Jehu himself had continued in idolatry. And the idolatry went back to Jeroboam. Now David spoke about this a number of weeks ago, where the northern and southern kingdom was split. And so Jeroboam, to stop people going up to Jerusalem and potentially becoming disloyal, set up two calves for them to worship and said, this is God. So, and that idolatry carried right the way through all of these kings. And Jehu carried it on, Jehoaz carried it on, and Jehoash carried it on. So it was a whole time of idolatry in the people of Israel, where they were worshipping God, but worshipping other things as well. And into, into that whole realm... First Elijah and then Elisha was prophesying, trying to bring change, trying to draw people back to God. So, there we go, Elijah and Elisha side by side there. The ministry of Elijah and Elisha was to bring people back to God, back into relationship and obedience to the God of Israel, Yahweh. And Elijah had done it, you remember, through confrontation. He'd taken on the prophets of Baal. He'd stood on Mount Carmel and he challenged them. Whichever God answers by fire, that's the true God. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to continue to halt between two opinions? If God is God, worship him. If Baal is God, worship him. And Elijah had done all that through confrontation. Elisha, in contrast, had done it, had called the people back through demonstration of power with miraculous signs surrounding his ministry. As you read through two kings, what you see one after another falling from the pages is the miracles of God's intervention and God speaking prophetically into and through Elisha. He also established the school of prophets so the word would not reside on him alone, but so the people would hear the word of the Lord through many of his prophets. And also, Elisha had been used to give strategic military advice to Israel's kings during critical moments so that they weren't overwhelmed by their enemies. It wasn't given because they deserved it or deserved to be rescued because they continued in idolatry. But it was given because of the covenant with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. God did not turn away from them. Just in the same passage we've just read, look back. To verse 4 and 5. It says, Then Jehoaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. And the Lord gave Israel deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans. And the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. So throughout this period, whenever the king turned and called out, or asked the prophet, the prophet would bring the word that would bring deliverance. Because God never turns his face away. Now in all that we've been saying this morning, all that we've been singing, all we've been praying, know that for certain, God will not turn his face away. When we come under times of stress, when we come under times of difficulty, when we come under times that challenge us, when the enemy seems to be breaking in on every side, the Lord will not turn his face away. As we cry to him, he will bring deliverance. He will bring rescue. He will bring salvation because that's his nature and that's his heart. So in the passage, 
when the king of Israel, Jehoash, comes to see Elisha on his deathbed, what, does he, what title does he give him? What does he say? Your father. But what, what, what does he attribute to him? Chariots of horsemen. He says, Father, Father, chariots of horsemen, chariots of Israel and his horsemen. In other words, do you think Elisha was out riding a chariot every day, riding on a horse? No, of course not. But he recognized the spiritual power that was at work through Elisha to rescue and deliver the people of God. It wasn't in Elisha, but in the power of God working through him. That actually... Having Elisha in, in, as a presence within the nation was as powerful as having an army full of chariots and horsemen in terms of giving deliverance and bringing rescue. That's what he's acknowledging. It's the same for us. Our power to overcome against the circumstances of life does not rest in our wealth, in our job, in our resources, in our gifts, or our talents. It rests in the power of God working through us, in and through the Holy Spirit. Our ability to deal with the storms of life is not based on who we are, but who we are in Christ Jesus. Do you know who you are in Christ Jesus? Do you know your spiritual identity? For when you do, you can make a stand and trust in the living God. I know I am a son of the living God through the power of the cross which has delivered me from the power of the enemy. I know that I am covered by the blood of Jesus so that there is no guilt to be found in me when the enemy comes to accuse me. I know that I am set free from his power because Jesus Christ has paid the price to set me free on the cross. I know that I have hope of a resurrection because Jesus is resurrected. And I know I can stand in the truth of that day by day against anything that the enemy brings against me. The power of God in me is greater than him that is in the world. I know my identity in Christ. And I can stand. Not because I'm special, but because I believe in him who has saved me. We are who we are in Christ Jesus, and in Christ Jesus we can stand. And in this nation, we believers act as salt and light. Just as Elisha acted as the deliverance of Israel, we can be a a good, pervading influence to hold back the powers of evil in this nation, to keep this nation from plunging further into darkness. It's just not just in what we do or what we say, but in our very presence here. That doesn't mean that we don't stand up for righteousness and justice, we do. But we should never underestimate the value of a praying people for a nation. Our prayers can change the spiritual atmosphere over our nation. Our prayers can hold back and even turn back the tide of evil that would seek to to overcome and seek to wash away all goodness here. You and I can rise to be nation influencers as we speak the prophetic word and as we pray into the situations in our nation. You and I can change this nation. We need to believe it. 
but we need to do it as well. Even things like street angels, random acts of kindness, being a positive influence on the streets of the town. I was out there for the first time last night, till three o'clock in the morning. We had some fun. We got very wet. We rescued a couple of very distressed and very vulnerable people. And we know that in doing that, we are exercising, extending the, the hand of God and the love of God to someone who is in need and who otherwise wouldn't receive it. We are being a positive influence on the streets of the town. We're being a positive influence wherever we go. You and I, wherever we go, are a positive influence, if we will choose to be so, into the situations where God takes us. Because the Spirit of God resides in you, and wherever you go, you will bring that influence to bear. And you will change the atmosphere and change the dynamics. But our prayers can change the atmosphere of a nation. As we speak the prayer, as we speak the prophetic word, See, sometimes I get frustrated when God's people don't seem to see the need for such prayer. Perhaps it's that we don't think it makes any difference. What's the point? Not going to change anything. Yes, it is. Perhaps we find prayer boring. The truth is that our prayers can make a difference here. But we need to be praying. Not just individually, but corporately as well. And as we do so, our prayers will gather momentum And we will see increasingly things happen in response to our prayers. I mentioned last week about, oh, there's the chariots of Israel and their horses. Sorry, forgot to put that picture up. About Rhys Howells. Um, If you've ever read Rhys Howells, the book, Rhys Howells' Intercessor, it's a life-changing book. It's a book that challenges you to the depth of your being about what real commitment to God is all about. Who's read it? Yeah. If you haven't read it, I command you to get hold of a copy and read it. <laughs> because it will, it will, you will not be the same after reading it. I, I guarantee you that. You cannot approach life, you cannot approach prayer in the same way. Because you see what one man, totally committed to God and totally committed to prayer, can do. His prayers influenced the nation. His prayers were influential across the world. His prayers, and the prayers of those praying with him, changed situations in the Second World War. They changed strategic things that were going on to bring an end to that much more quickly. His prayers were dramatic, but because he was willing and he was sold out. Your prayers, God with you, can change situations. Get hold of that book. It is an option, by the way. Come on, it's an <laughs> A command with options in it. Strong recommendation. <laughs> so over the summer, I would like to encourage us all once again to consider our commitment to corporate prayer for this town, for this region, for this nation. And when we come back in September, we will recommence with a new season of prayer for specific issues. And see what God will do through us. We can be the chariots and horsemen of Britain if we will take prayer seriously.
So, let's get back to the text. Jehoash. Jehoash, sorry. Task given to Jehoash. He comes to Elisha, but his concern is for the chariots and the cavalry. Not really for Elisha's health. And you'll see, if you look back in verse 7 of the passage, it says, For he left to Jehoahaz of the army, not more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen, for the king of Aram, Aram had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. You see, Jehoahash had inherited the, the, the throne, but he had a ragamuffin army left. Not much to take on the king of Aram. And so he recognizes in Elisha dying that he's got a problem with his defenses. So he comes and says, what am I going to do about it? Master, what will Israel's chariots and cavalry be able to do without you? And so Elisha gives him two instructions. Firstly, he says, fire an arrow out of the window with the assistance of Elisha in an easterly direction, generally towards Syria. And then he tells him to bash some arrows on the ground. What do you think that's going to do? Firing an arrow and then bashing some arrows on the ground. Obviously nothing in themselves. But they are a prophetic act on the basis of which Jehoash's request will be fulfilled. The armies will have some ongoing supernatural help after the departure of Elisha. However, while the first one is fulfilled, the arrow is fired out and Elisha declares the word that it will be a word of victory over the armies. Jehoash stops short. He only partly fulfills. He bashes the arrows three times. And Elisha said, you should have bashed them six or seven times, then you'd have had victory. If Elisha gets frustrated with him. I have to say I feel a bit sorry for Jehoash here. He didn't really know what he was being asked to do. He didn't, you know, get a bunch of arrows, bash them on the ground. Okay, I'm fed up with that now, bored. He did what he thought was appropriate, but it turned out to be not enough. And prophetically, this was to determine how many times Israel would defeat Syria, Aram. And three times would not be enough to defeat them completely. Jehoash's reign ended in 786 BC. And just 46 years later, in 740 BC, Israel's northern kingdom was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Three victories were not enough. And there's a message here about persevering and pressing through. If we want to see success, if we want to see victory, If we want to be overcomers, we need to continue and not stop short. Not do what we think is enough, but to keep pressing on. Do you ever feel tempted to give up? Me too. Do you ever feel like it's all a bit much? The effort is not worth the struggle and pain to achieve the goal you're reaching for. I think most of us feel like that at some stage. It's a normal human reaction to trying and difficult circumstances or to physical, emotional or mental fatigue. And I think at such times we all need to step back and make a proper assessment as to whether we're on the right track or not. However, if we come to the conclusion that we are, 
Sometimes we just need to press on and press through. No shortcuts, just do it. Sometimes it's only a gritted teeth determination that will get us where we want and need to be. But you see, a diamond is just a piece of charcoal that handles stress exceptionally well. The modern way is, oh, it's too much stress. Oh, it's not worth the hassle. We're no longer brought up to press on and press through when things are not going well. Instead, we look for an escape route, a way out, a short-term fix. But as I said last week, the best way out is always through. Paul expresses it like this in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, or no test has overtaken you, except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will provide a way through so that you will endure it. I'll read that again. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tested, he will also provide a way that you can endure it. God will provide a way through. He is faithful. He promises that he will take us through the difficult circumstance, the challenging circumstance, the thing that seems to overwhelm us and wants to overcome us. He will provide a way through. Our faith has to be in his faithfulness. And as we put our trust in him, he will provide a way through. We don't have to do it on our own. We do it based on the faithfulness of God. And God's promise is that if you're going through difficult circumstances that are testing you to the limit, he is there with you and will provide a way through. Because he loves you. And he has endured all things on your behalf. Why would he not help you through the circumstances that life throws at you? Now we come to the last bit of that passage. This whole bizarre story of when the Moabites are raiding and people are someone are taking out a dead body to bury and they, they get scared and they throw it into Elisha's grave and suddenly it comes back to life. Amazing story. That even after he was dead, he was able to raise people back to life. Such was the presence of God during his life that that presence remained in his bones after his death. And this draws us to something of the legacy of Elisha. It's not just good enough to start well. We are called also to finish well. It's all great being enthusiastic when we first come to faith, but God wants to see us as those who will walk right the way through. And when we finish, we finish. Like David, a man who served the purpose of God in his generation. And Elisha left a legacy. What's your legacy? What's my legacy? I don't mean how much you're planning to leave your children. 
Reminds me of an handicap cartoon I once saw. Florrie says to Andy, do you think we ought to make a will? Andy says, how much have you got? She says, nothing. He says, how much have I got? She says, nothing. He says, well, who should we leave it to then? We're not talking about that kind of legacy. I mean, what will be the lasting impact of your spiritual life in this world? What will be left behind? Will there be any ongoing fruit from your three score year and ten? This can be difficult to to gauge. Maybe it's the seed you've sown in the life of your children or the lives of other people's children through teaching and training them. Maybe it's through the words you shared here or with others personally, or through sharing faith, which has an impact on the lives of others. When we've shuffled off this mortal coil, we can leave a few mortal remains in the ground somewhere, and a few pennies to those we love, or we can leave an impact that for some will last for eternity. That which you invest in as your legacy ultimately is that which will last for eternity. It comes down to where we choose to sow our energies, our time, our resources and our gifts. Putting everything into the temporal seems a bit pointless to me. Putting everything into building up my wealth or building up my house or, or, or spending time just doing my job and all that. All a bit of a waste of time, really. Got no eternal value, particularly whatsoever. That which has eternal value is that which I do for the king. And that which will leave a legacy in the lives of others when I am gone. And I can't determine what that means for you. If you ask me, I can make some suggestions. But you need to identify for yourself what is of eternal worth. And allow that to shape what you invest in. All I can say is I want to be like Elisha so that when I'm gone, what I've left behind still impacts the lives of others. How about you? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the examples of Elisha and Elijah that we've looked at over the last few weeks. And we pray, Lord God, that the challenge of their lives might be a challenge to our lives in the way we live and in what we invest our energies and our time and our resources into. And Lord God, may indeed you bring forth something from within us, individually and collectively, which is of eternal value for your kingdom. Amen.